Section 7 of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. New York, Monday, February 5, 1906. Dr. John Brown continued. Incidents connected with Susie Clemens' childhood. Bad spelling, etc. His was a sweet and winning face, as beautiful a face as I have ever known, reposeful, gentle, benignant, the face of a saint at peace with all the world, and placidly beaming upon it, the sunshine of love that filled his heart. Dr. John was beloved by everybody in Scotland, and I think that on its downward sweep southward it found no frontier. I think so because when, a few years later, infirmities compelled Dr. John to give up his practice, and Mr. Douglas, the publisher and other friend, set themselves the task of raising a fund of a few thousand dollars whose income was to be devoted to the support of himself and his maiden sister, who was in age, the fund was not only promptly made up, but so very promptly that the books were closed before friends a hundred miles south of the line had had an opportunity to contribute. No public appeal was made. The matter was never mentioned in print. Mr. Douglas and the other friends applied for contributions by private letter only. Many complaints came from London, and everywhere between, from people who had not been allowed an opportunity to contribute. This sort of complaint is so new to the world, so strikingly unusual, that I think it worth while to mention it. Dr. John was very fond of animals, and particularly of dogs. No one needs to be told this who has read that pathetic and beautiful masterpiece, Rab and His Friends. After his death, his son, Jock, published a brief memorial of him, which he distributed privately among the friends, and in it occurs a little episode which illustrates the relationship that existed between Dr. John and the other animals. It is furnished by an Edinburgh lady whom Dr. John used to pick up and carry to school or back in his carriage frequently at a time when she was twelve years old. She said that they were chatting together tranquilly one day when he suddenly broke off in the midst of a sentence and thrust his head out of the carriage window eagerly, then resumed his place with a disappointed look on his face. The girl said, Who is it? Someone you know? He said, No, a dog I don't know. He had two names for Susie, Wee Wifey and Megalopus, Sick. This formidable Greek title was conferred in honor of her big, big dark eyes. Susie and the doctor had a good deal of romping together. Daily he unbent his dignity and played bear with the child. I do not now remember which of them was the bear, but I think it was the child. There was a sofa across a corner of the parlor with a 
door behind it opening into Susie's quarters, and she used to lie in wait for the doctor behind the sofa. Not lie in wait, but stand in wait, for you could only get just a glimpse of the top of her yellow head when she stood upright. According to the rules of the game, she was invisible, and this glimpse did not count. I think she must have been the bear, for I can remember two or three occasions when she sprang out from behind the sofa and surprised the doctor into frenzies of fright, which were not in the least modified by the fact that he knew that the bear was there and was coming. It seems incredible that Dr. John should ever have wanted to tell a grotesque and rollicking anecdote. Such a thing seems so out of character with that gentle and tranquil nature that, uh, but no matter. I tried to teach him the anecdote, and he tried his best for two or three days to perfect himself in it, and he never succeeded. It was the most impressive exhibition that ever was. There was no human being, nor dog, of his acquaintance in all Edinburgh that would not have been paralyzed with astonishment to step in there and see Dr. John trying to do that anecdote. It was one which I have told some hundreds of times on the platform, and which I was always very fond of, because it worked the audience so hard. It was a stammering man's account of how he got cured of his infirmity, which was accomplished by introducing a whistle into the midst of every word which he found himself unable to finish on account of the obstruction of the stammering and so his whole account was an absurd mixture of stammering and whistling, which was irresistible to an audience properly keyed up for laughter. Dr. John learned to do the mechanical details of the anecdote, but he was never able to inform these details with expression. He was preternaturally grave and earnest all through, and so when he fetched up with the climaxing triumphant sentence at the end, but I must quote that sentence, or the reader will not understand, it was this. The doctor told me that whenever I wanted to stack, 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 mer, I must whistle, and I did, and it cured me entirely. The doctor could not master that triumphant note. He always gravely stammered and whistled and whistled and stammered it through, and it came out at the end with the solemnity and the gravity of the judge delivering sentence to a man with the black cap on. He was the loveliest creature in the world, except his aged sister, who was just like him. We made the round of his professional visits with him in his carriage 
every day for six weeks. He always brought a basket of grapes, and we brought books. The scheme which we began with on the first round of visits was the one which was maintained until the end, and was based upon this remark which he made when he was disembarking from the carriage at his first stopping place to visit a patient. Entertain yourselves while I go in here and reduce the population. As a child, Susie had a passionate temper, and it cost her much remorse and many tears before she learned to govern it. But after that it was a wholesome salt, and her character was the stronger and healthier for its presence. It enabled her to be good with dignity. It preserved her not only from being good for vanity's sake, but from even the appearance of it. In looking back over the long-vanished years, it seems but natural and excusable that I should dwell with longing affection and preference upon incidents of her young life which made it beautiful to us, and that I should let its few and small offenses go unsummoned and unreproached. In the summer of 1880, when Susie was just eight years of age, the family were at Quarry Farm, on top of a high hill three miles from Elmira, New York, where we always spent our summers in those days. Hay-cutting time was approaching, and Susie and Clara were counting the hours, for the time was big with a great event for them. They had been promised that they might mount the wagon and ride home from the fields on the summit of the hay mountain. This perilous privilege, so dear to their age and species, had never been granted them before. Their excitement had no bounds. They could talk of nothing but this epic-making adventure now. But misfortune overtook Susie on the very morning of the important day. In a sudden outbreak of passion she corrected Clara with a shovel or stick or something of the sort. At any rate, the offense committed was of a gravity clearly beyond the limit allowed in the nursery. In accordance with the rule and custom of the house, Susie went to her mother to confess and to help decide upon the size and character of the punishment due. It was quite understood that, as a punishment could have but one rational object and function, to act as a reminder and warn the transgressor against transgressing in the same way again, the children would know about as well as any how to choose a penalty which would be rememberable and effective. Susie and her mother discussed various punishments, but none of them seemed adequate. This fault was an unusually serious one, and required the setting up of a danger signal in the memory that would not blow out nor burn out, but remain a fixture there, 
and furnish its saving warning indefinitely. Among the punishments mentioned was deprivation of the hay-wagon ride. It was noticeable that this one hit Susie hard. Finally, in the summing up, the mother named over the list and asked, Which one do you think it ought to be, Susie? Susie studied, shrank from her duty, and asked, Which do you think, Mama? Well, Susie, I rather leave it to you. You make the choice yourself. It cost Susie a struggle, and much, and deep thinking and weighing, but she came out where anyone who knew her could have foretold she would. Well, Mama, I'll make it the hay wagon, because, you know, the other things might not make me remember not to do it again. But if I don't get to ride on the hay wagon, I can remember it easily. In this world, the real penalty, the sharp one, the lasting one, never falls otherwise than on the wrong person. It was not I that corrected Clara, but the remembrance of poor Susie's lost hayride still brings me a pang after twenty-six years. Apparently Susie was born with humane feelings for the animals and compassion for their troubles. This enabled her to see a new point in an old story once when she was only six years old, a point which had been overlooked by older and perhaps duller people for many ages. Her mother told her the moving story of the sale of Joseph by his brethren, the staining of his coat with the blood of the slaughtered kid, and the rest of it. She dwelt upon the inhumanity of the brothers, their cruelty toward their helpless young brother, and the unbrotherly treachery which they practiced upon him, for she hoped to teach the child a lesson in gentle pity and mercifulness which she would remember. Apparently her desire was accomplished, for the tears came into Susie's eyes, and she was deeply moved, and then she said, Poor little kid! A child's frank envy of the privileges and distinctions of its elders is often a delicately flattering attention, and the reverse of unwelcome, but sometimes the envy is not placed where the beneficiary is expecting it to be placed. Once, when Susie was seven, she sat breathlessly absorbed in watching a guest of ours adorn herself for a ball. The lady was charmed by this homage, this mute and gentle admiration, and was happy in it, and when her pretty labors were finished, and she stood at last, perfect, unimprovable, clothed like Solomon in his glory, she paused, confident and expectant, to receive from Susie's tongue the tribute that was burning in her eyes. Susie drew an envious little sigh and said, I wish I could have crooked teeth and spectacles. Once when Susie was six months along in her eighth year, 
she did something one day in the presence of company which subjected her to criticism and reproof afterward when she was alone with her mother as was her custom she reflected a little while over the matter then she set up what i think and what the shade of burns would think was a quite good philosophical defense well mamma you know i didn't see myself and so i couldn't know how it looked in homes where the near friends and visitors are mainly literary people lawyers judges professors and clergymen the children's ears become early familiarized with wide vocabularies it is natural for them to pick up any words that fall in their way it is natural for them to pick up big and little ones indiscriminately it is natural for them to use without fear any word that comes to their net no matter how formidable it may be as to size as a result their talk is a curious and funny musketry clatter of little words interrupted at intervals by the heavy artillery crash of a word of such imposing sound and size that it seems to shake the ground and rattle the windows sometimes the child gets a wrong idea of a word which it has picked up by chance and attaches to it a meaning which impairs its usefulness but this does not happen as often as one might expect it would indeed it happens with an infrequency which may be regarded as remarkable as a child susie had good fortune with her large words and she employed many of them she made no more than her fair share of mistakes once she thought something very funny was going to happen but it didn't she was racked and torn with laughter by anticipation but apparently she still felt sure of her position for she said if it had happened i should have been transformed transported with glee and earlier when she was a little maid of five years she informed a visitor that she had been in a church only once and that was the time when clara was crucified christened in heidelberg when she was six she noticed that the schloss gardens dear me how remote things do come together i break off that sentence to remark that at a luncheon uptown yesterday i reminded the hostess that she had not made me acquainted with all the guests she said yes she was aware of that that by request of one of the ladies she had left me to guess that lady out for myself that i had known that lady for a day more than a quarter of a century ago and that the lady was desirous of finding out how long it would take me to dig her up out of my memory the rest of the company were in the game and were anxious to see whether i would succeed or fail it seemed to me as the time drifted along 
that I was never going to be able to locate that woman, but at last, when the luncheon was nearly finished, a discussion broke out as to where the most comfortable hotel in the world was to be found. Various hotels on the several sides of the ocean were mentioned, and at last somebody reminded her that she had not put forward a preference yet, and she was asked to name the hotel that she thought was, from her point of view, the most satisfactory and comfortable hotel on the planet, and she said promptly, the slosh at Heidelberg. I said at once, I am sincerely glad to meet you again, Mrs. Jones, after this long stretch of years, but you were Miss Smith in those days. Have I located you? Yes, she said, you have. I knew I had. During that day at Heidelberg, so many years ago, many charitable people tried furtively to get that young Miss Smith to adopt the prevailing pronunciation of Schloss by saying Schloss softly and casually every time she said slosh. But nobody succeeded in converting her, and I knew perfectly well that this was that same old Smith girl, because there could not be two persons on this planet at one and the same time who could preserve and stick to a mispronunciation like that for nearly a generation. As I was saying, when I interrupted myself, in Heidelberg, when Susie was six, she noticed that the Schloss Gardens were populous with snails creeping all about everywhere. One day she found a new dish on her table and inquired concerning it, and learned that it was made of snails. She was awed and impressed, and said, Wild ones, Mama? She was thoughtful and considerate of others, an acquired quality, no doubt. No one seems to be born with it. One hot day at home in Hartford, when she was a little child, her mother borrowed her fan several times, a Japanese one, value five cents, refreshed herself with it a moment or two, and then handed it back with a word of thanks. Susie knew her mother would use the fan all the time if she could do it without putting a deprivation upon its owner. She also knew that her mother could not be persuaded to do that. A relief must be devised somehow. Susie devised it. She got five cents out of her money-box and carried it to Patrick and asked him to take it downtown a mile and a half and buy a Japanese fan and bring it home. He did it, and thus thoughtfully and delicately was the exigency met and the mother's comfort secured. It is to the child's credit that she did not save herself expense by bringing down another and more costly kind of fan from upstairs, but was content to act upon the impression that her mother desired the Japanese kind, content to accomplish the desire and stop with that, 
without troubling about the wisdom or unwisdom of it. Sometimes, while she was still a child, her speech fell into quaint and strikingly impressive forms. Once, aged nine or ten, she came to her mother's room when her sister Jean was a baby, and said Jean was crying in the nursery, and asked if she might ring for the nurse. Her mother asked, Is she crying hard? meaning cross, ugly. Well, no, mamma. It is a weary, lonesome cry. It is a pleasure to me to recall various incidents which reveal the delicacies of feeling which were so considerable a part of her budding character. Such a revelation came once in a way which, while creditable to her heart, was defective in another direction. She was in her eleventh year then. Her mother had been making the Christmas purchases, and she allowed Susie to see the presents which were for Patrick's children. Among these was a handsome sled for Jimmy, on which a stag was painted, also in gilt capitals the word dear. Susie was excited and joyous over everything until she came to this sled. Then she became sober and silent, yet the sled was the choicest of all the gifts. Her mother was surprised and also disappointed, and said, Why, Susie, doesn't it please you? Isn't it fine? Susie hesitated, and it was plain that she did not want to say the thing that was in her mind. However, being urged, she brought it haltingly out. Well, Mama, it is fine, and, of course, it did cost a good deal, but—but why should that be mentioned? Seeing that she was not understood, she reluctantly pointed to that word dear. It was her orthography that was at fault, not her heart. She had inherited both from her mother. The ability to spell is a natural gift. The person not born with it can never become perfect in it. I was always able to spell correctly. My wife and her sister, Mrs. Crane, were always bad spellers. Once, when Clara was a little chap, her mother was away from home for a few days, and Clara wrote her a small letter every day. When her mother returned, she praised Clara's letters. Then she said, But in one of them, Clara, you spelled a word wrong. Clara said, with quite unconscious brutality, Why, Mama, how did you know? More than a quarter of a century has elapsed, and Mrs. Crane is under our roof here in New York for a few days. Her head is white now, but she is as pretty and winning and sweet as she was in those ancient times at her quarry farm, where she was an idol, and the rest of us were the worshippers. Her gift of imperfect orthography remains unimpaired. She writes a great many letters. This was always a passion of hers. Yesterday she asked me how to spell New Jersey, and I knew by her look, after she got the information, that she was regretting she hadn't asked somebody years ago. 
the miracles which she and her sister mrs clemens were able to perform without help of dictionary or spelling-book are incredible during the year of my engagement eighteen sixty nine while i was out on the lecture platform the daily letter that came for me generally brought me news from the front by which expression i refer to the internecine war that was always going on in a friendly way between these two orthographists about the spelling of words one of these words was scissors they never seemed to consult a dictionary they always wanted something or somebody that was more reliable between them they had spelled scissors in seven different ways a feat which i am certain no person now living educated or uneducated can match i have forgotten how i was required to say which of the seven ways was the right one i couldn't do it if there had been fourteen ways none of them would have been right i remember only one of the instances offered the other six have passed my memory that one was scissors that way of spelling it looked so reasonable so plausible to the discoverer of it that i was hardly believed when i decided against it mrs crane keeps by her to this day a little book of about thirty pages of note-paper on which she has written in a large hand words which she needs to use in her letters every day words which the cat could spell without prompting or tuition and yet are words which mrs crane never allows herself to risk upon paper without looking at that vocabulary of hers each time to make certain during my engagement year thirty-seven years ago a considerable company of young people amused themselves in the langdon homestead one night with the game of verbarian which was brand new at the time and very popular a text word was chosen and each person wrote that word in large letters across the top of a sheet of paper then sat with pencil in hand and ready to begin as soon as game was called the player could begin with the first letter of that text word and build words out of the text word during two minutes by the watch but he must not use a letter that was not in the text word and he must not use any letter in the text word twice unless the letter occurred twice in the text word i remember the first bout that we had at that game the text word was california when the game was called everybody began to set down words as fast as he could make his pencil move corn car cone and so on digging out the shortest words first because they could be set down more quickly than the longer ones when the two minutes were up the scores were examined and the prize went to the person who had achieved the largest number of words 
the good scores ranged along between thirty and fifty or sixty words but mrs crane would not allow her score to be examined she was plainly doubtful about getting that prize but when persuasion failed to avail we chased her about the place captured her and took her score away from her by force she had achieved only one word and that was calf which she had spelled c-a-f-f and she never would have gotten even that one word honestly she had to introduce a letter that didn't belong in the text word in order to get it end of section seven new york monday february fifth nineteen o six